If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Thank you, guys. That's really nice of you. Definitely need more volunteers, and I don't have to do this as much either, so more preachers. If you're out there, I don't know. Are you guys okay today? Small crew, huh? We should move in closer, I feel like, but that's okay. I won't make you do that. Um, We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 today one of my favorite texts, and we're going to be looking at the back half of it. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and get that thing out and flip to Romans chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 25. And if you find it, just look up at me, and I'll know you're there. Okay? Does that sound good? Smartphones, those are Bibles too, kind of, right? There's scriptures in there. I like the pages, though. I like that better. As we were worshiping, I was thinking, like, how how hard it is to represent like this infinite holy God with this finite body. You know, like I can't represent God. Like I'm so limited in my capacity to communicate the word of God. And so um, if you feel like you got ripped off today, just know that Jesus is bigger than my limitations of communicating the word. Okay. So don't leave here thinking like, oh, that's all that God's got for me. No, that's this Brandon and his limitations. So um, be encouraged with that. So uh, let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to talk about some things. Lord, we thank you that we can come here and gather and open your word in our laps, that you were ordained for us to be in this moment today before time began. And so we ask that we would live into that moment, that we would really understand who Jesus is and how we should live in light of that. If you are the, the person that you said, are, that said you are, that we should really consider how that affects every area of our lives. And so, God, we thank you that we're saved by grace and that we're just humans. Um, We can't really, we're like sheep that's going astray all the time. And so, God, thank you that you love us so much to kind of get us back in the fold, like you're a good God. And so we thank you for who you are and our salvation and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So I particularly like this text that we're going to look at today because we actually find out that Paul is a human, Right? like the rest of us sitting in this room. I don't know if you guys, when you read your New Testament and you're just like, man, this is not a real guy. Like Paul, the apostle, was a gnarly, gnarly dude. And today, kind of fun, we're going to find out that he was actually a normal person with real problems. And so before we get to the text, I want to give you guys a few examples of how Paul was absolutely no doubt a prolific Christian. Like if there was a starting team for Christianity, he would be on the team, right? Like he would be the point card. And so we get a real sense of a few examples I want to give you guys. And the first one I want to mention is that if you just sit down and read a few of Paul's letters, um, you really get an understanding of how brilliant his mind was in understanding theology. Like there's this whole theological discipline set aside called Pauline theology where people just sit around in rooms and discuss Paul's rhetoric. He had an amazing theological mind. Or another instance is Paul's incredible example in the back of your Bibles, right? There's all those little um, Bibles, uh, all those little maps in the back of your Bible. Like I always, when I was a kid, I like to look at those. Like that was the most fun for me because they have colors and things like that. But those, Bible, those maps in the back of your Bible, actually, some of them show all the ground that Paul covered all across the Mediterranean world, all for the purpose of spreading the gospel. And so he wasn't like a vacationary, right? He was a real deal missionary. And he, 
He didn't hop in a car to drive from Jerusalem to Rome. He like did all that on foot and boat, and all for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Like this guy really went for it. Or one of my favorite stories in Acts chapter 16, where Paul goes to the city called Philippi, and they can't shut this guy up with preaching the gospel. And so what do they do? They, they shackle him and throw him in an inner prison. An inner prison in the first century was not a pretty place. And so what does Paul do in prison? He starts singing hymns and praising God in the middle of the night. Like, if I go to prison, I'm going to be on the phone with a lawyer, right? Like, for, for religion of all things, right? But not Paul. He's, he's praising God in all circumstances. And then at some point, the narrative goes on to say that an earthquake rips open his cell. Like, I'm thinking, God-ordained moment. I'm getting out of there. But instead, Paul stops, preaches the gospel to the very guy that threw him in there, who himself becomes a Christian. Like Paul's like, cool, arrest me, throw me in prison. I'm just going to praise God and convert all your guards. Like you could not stop the guy. And we could go on and on about stories of Paul, but what we forget so often about Paul is that he was a regular guy with real problems and a real human nature just like the rest of us. And it's funny because sometimes we forget what the Bible is, right? Like trip out on the fact that these are real letters from real authors writing to other real people with real problems who all have the same human nature that we have. And I think that we forget that really the Bible, the book that God wrote, is about using imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. And so Paul was, was no different. And so I want to remind you guys of this, how James actually says this in a positive sense, how he talks about how humans have this incredible capacity to do incredible things, and yet go down really low into depths. Uh, James put it like this in a positive sense. He said, Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. Like that, that is an amazing statement. Like James is saying that Elijah was a regular guy like the rest of us. He wasn't some super saint, but a human. And yet, we read in the scripture that when he prayed, the sky stopped giving rain for a few years. Like that's, that's really hard to imagine, right? And the picture actually comes from 1 Kings 17 and 18, where, where God was using Elijah to accomplish his purposes in judgment of this gnarly, gnarly, gnarly guy named King Ahab. And so this wasn't just some random thing where Elijah was bummed about the rain and decided to pray about it, but this was God actually judging Israel because of their worship of the Canaanite god Baal, who was thought to be sovereign over the rain. And so what does God do in classic God fashion? He, he mocks Baal and Israel's worship of him and shuts up the sky for a few years. But what's interesting at the Bible is that if we look at that passage in James at the surface, it looks like Elijah is uh, an amazing guy within himself. But what made him amazing was his willingness to follow God in faith. And so I say all of that to say this, that Elijah also had some really dark moments too, because just a couple of chapters later, in 1 Kings 19, we find Elijah cooped up in a cave with suicidal thoughts. And notice what he says. This is Elijah. He says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than any of my ancestors who have already died. Like, mind you, this is the same 
God that James reminds us was a human just as we are. And so God has to come to Elijah, tell him to get back up, dust himself off, and get back in the fight. And so, yeah, Elijah was a human just like the rest of us, capable of incredible highs and really low lows. And so I say all that just to say this. If you're not perfect, this message is for you. Because today we're going to read a very different side of Paul, the more human version of Paul. And so let's read the text starting in verse 14. He sounds kind of schizophrenic, to be honest. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold into the bondage to sin. For what I'm doing I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree the law is good, confessing that the law is right. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. This is such a mouthful. Verse 20, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, but the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God that in the inner man. Verse 23, but I see a different law in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving with the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Wow. So today, I titled the sermon, The War Within. So I was, I was going for something really cryptic, you know. And in a very real way, when we placed our faith in Christ as Christians, we, we started a lifelong war with ourselves, right? Like a sort of civil war, which is one of those, those really funny things that I was never really told about when I was being led to become a Christian. I thought I was kind of stepping into this life of serenity and, and soothe-smelling your best life now sort of scenario. Like I, I kind of had pictures of me and Jesus just skipping through wheat fields, right? Like the blonde head version and blue-eyed version of Jesus, because that's what I pictured him in my mind. I thought I was signing up for that kind of thing. But after a few months, I I felt like the honeymoon ended, so to speak, right? And I found myself at war with myself. And, and I didn't know if it was like a normal thing to have this unexplainable peace with God, but yet have these incredible inner turmoil of having these new godly desires, but yet the old ones still hanging around. Has anyone there, been there at all? Like, okay, there's a few Christians in here. Okay, so the, definitely, the struggle was definitely real in my life. It was it was really difficult, and, and so I'll be honest with you. Um, there were times where I, I really doubted my own salvation because I thought that when you come to Jesus that it meant all of our problems and all of our sinful desires just sort of vanish. And so I didn't think that this was the normative Christian experience because, because when I came to church, everyone just seemed kind of perfect, right? Like everyone seemed super happy and super holy, and I started to think, like, I'm not like these people. And so I needed to reevaluate this whole Christian thing. And, and so I'll tell you what I did. 
I started reading my Bible profusely, like a lot of Bible reading. And I started meeting with other Christians on a normal basis. And we started peeling back the, the layers of religiosity in our own lives. And I found that actually some of my brothers had the same exact struggles that I had. It was so liberating to know that I was not the only imperfect Christian, right? And not only that, but when I was reading my Bible so profusely, it was like insane. I started reading in my Bible about this inner war of the flesh and the spirit, the old nature and the new nature. And I don't know, like maybe nobody warned me about this inward war because really war is quite indescribable, right? Like a person who has been to war can never really quite describe to a person who has not been in a war what being in the middle of a war is really like, right? You can't describe the atmosphere. You can't describe the inner angst. And so when I came to church, I just saw this great disconnect between my experience and the perceived perfection that I projected on other churchy sort of people. Because I knew the Bible was conveying this inner war that's described in some pretty crazy imagery, like picking up your cross, dying to yourself, like making war with your sin. I know that we get kind of used to that language, but that's, that's pretty violent, right? That's like saying, sit in an electric chair to get rid of your old nature. That's, that's, pretty, that's, pretty, that's pretty radical. And so, in fact, after I went through this little journey, I guess you could say, I quickly learned the opposite, that this was actually the normative Christian experience, that if I was not experiencing a battle, a struggle with sin, then I should actually be more concerned. And so in Romans 7, it was absolutely instrumental to my understanding of this reality that, that when we're born of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, we started a civil war with ourselves that we will take to the grave because we have two radically different natures. And so let's go to the text. I want to show you how Paul shows us this. Because Paul is writing from his own experience. And so from the get-go, we can't miss that. This is from his own life. Like the Apostle Paul. Because you'll notice, notice that the letter has transitioned from the past tense to the present tense, right? Like he mentions I, speaking of himself, 15 times in 12 short verses. And in fact, this little section in Romans right here almost sounds like a psalm of of desperation or something that you would find in the book of Lamentations. And so there in verse 14, he says that we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. And so he's framing the argument from the very beginning by drawing this crazy dichotomy. The law is good, but I'm not. And so he makes this argument from the very get-go that the problem is not with the law, but the problem is something very inherent to Paul. And so he's not chalking up his failures to the fault of the law. He's not saying, God, this is your fault that I'm this way because you made the law, right? Like, I wouldn't be like this if you made the law, right? And I thought of something funny. I don't know if you guys think it's funny or not, but that would be me, like, asking my wife if a pair of pants make me look fat, right? Like, really, like, like the pants revealed something that's already true about me, right? Like, the pants didn't do anything wrong. They just get bought at a store, and I put them on and ask them how they look on me, right? So the same thing with the law. He's saying the law is good and right, and it's revealing something already true about you. And so Paul is saying, like, no, the law is spiritual, but I'm the problem. And when he says the law is spiritual, he's saying something very specific. He's saying it's not an abstract list of rules. It's not a good advice for moral behavior, but it's the very revelation of God's 
character. The law is the very revelation of God's character. And so it's not just physical. It's very, very, very spiritual because it deals with inward attitudes and not merely outward actions. And this is so interesting, okay? Because there in verse 14, Paul says, like, we know this to be true. He's saying, Christians, I'm writing to Roman Christians. Like, you guys know this to be true. Like, we know that the law is not an abstract list of rules. We know that the law is very spiritual. And this is one of those unexplainable things that the Spirit does in the life of the believer, that you actually delight in the law of God. And I shared this before, but when I came to Christ, I, I dusted all the dust off my Bible and started reading that thing on the daily, right? And not to say that my experience is the measure of truth, but the Bible does reveal in multiple cases how God's people absolutely love his word. In fact, the longest chapter in the entire Bible is 176 verses of the psalmist expressing how much he loves the word in 101 different ways. Like he's just frothing on the word. Psalm 119. And now Paul is saying, like, your inner man knows the word to be good because of what God has done in your heart. And so it doesn't mean that you're, that you're obeying it perfectly. It doesn't mean that you're seeking to be justified by it. But nevertheless, you cherish it in a way, in a very real way that you did not before because it informs you of who you are, who God is, and how to live in light of that. And that's what Paul is claiming here, that, that rather than loving the law in a, in a self-righteous, legalistic way, as he once did, he loves it now because it is the very revelation of God. And he says that in Philippians 3, one of my favorite chapters of all the Bible, he gives us a little vignette of that, where he's, he's basically smack-talking, ancient first-century smack-talking anybody who wants to be justified by the law. And he basically says, I'm way more holy than you, bro. And he starts firing off all of his credentials, which doesn't mean anything to us. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee without fault in his law keeping, which translates to the modern reader like, yeah, you're, you're definitely way more holy than us, bro. And he comes to the end of those religious credentials, and this is what's the point. He comes to the end of those religious credentials, and he says that was all garbage. Like literally in the Greek, it was crap. It was poop, like it was waste, like it was butt rubbish, in light of what the law, that's the Greek, I'm telling you guys, look it up, blue letter Bible, I'm telling you, butt rubbish right there. No, it's, 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 like a, it's almost like the Bible cusses, it's kind of weird. But Paul's trying to make a point though, right? He's saying, in light of what the law really demands and how Christ fulfilled it, he's saying that was all garbage. And we get a real understanding of that early in the same chapter that we're in now, in chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, where basically Paul is teaching us what the law actually demands and what God is actually like. And in those verses, verses 7 through 12, in your Bible right now, in chapter 7, he basically mentions the last commandment. You shall not covet is what shook him out of his self-righteous attitude. And what's really quite brilliant about, he's a brilliant guy, Pauline theology, okay? And what's brilliant about this, because what's interesting about the 10th commandment is that it's vastly different than the other nine. Because you see, all the other commandments can be adhered to at a superficial surface sort of way because they're all exterior. And so for Paul to say, 
in Philippians chapter 3 that he was faultless in his law-keeping may have very well been true at the surface, at the letter of the law. Like, like we can definitely make it through the rest of the day without lying, stealing, or killing somebody, right? Like, if you're going to kill somebody, you should definitely hang around the service and talk to somebody about that, right? So we can, we can adhere to the, to the law in a very surface, superficial way, but, but what's different about coveting, what's different about the 10th commandment is that you can covet all day long, and nobody knows if you have that desire in your heart. Like, nobody knows if you have a desire for something or someone in a way that does not honor God. And so the 10th commandment is vastly different than the other nine because this is sort of catch-all that traces all the issues back to the motive because the law is concerned with inward attitudes and not merely outward actions. Does that make sense? The law is concerned with inward attitudes, the motive, and not merely outward actions. Why? Because God loves people who have hearts, right? Because God loves people who have hearts and not robots who are programmed to function. And so really to break any commandment starts with the heart of coveting. And we begin to really understand Jesus' teaching at the Sermon on the Mount through this lens of understanding the law, where he was basically recapturing the essence of the law from all the previous rabbis who had created this legalistic web. And so Jesus, he goes directly to the spirit of the law, and he says things like this. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say if you, if you lust after another, then you're actually an adulterer. And so the law was never a matter of exterior adherence, but a matter of true inner righteousness, right? Because the law is not about sin management, but true inner holiness. And what's so cool about this is that it reveals something about God. I said earlier that the law is the revelation of God. And what this reveals about God is that God's motives are absolutely pure. Like he is righteous to the core. All of his attributes are perfect and holy. Because when Jesus took on flesh and died on the cross, it was not contingent on anything but his love for us. It wasn't like he looked down from heaven and said, those guys are awesome, right? And I'm going down. No. The Bible teaches us that we love him and others because he first loved us. A kind of love that's not contingent on any sort of ulterior motive. And so Paul says, yeah, the law is very spiritual. And then the second half says, I'm of the flesh. And so verses 15 through 23, he begins to describe his predicament. And Paul, it's interesting because he says essentially the exact same thing three different times. I probably felt like I was babbling up here when I was reading that long section of Scripture because in verses 15 and 17, 18 through 20, and 21 through 23, he says the exact same thing in different little ways. And it can basically be summed up in saying that, that he knows that the law is good and right, but something deep inside of him beckons him to do things his own way. And this has really racked my brain this week because he goes so far to say that in verses 17 and 20, that it's no longer him that's doing it, but the sin that dwells in him. Like, that's almost like the devil made me do it sort of logic, right? Like, that sounds like a cop-out. Like, do something really dumb today, and then when you're confronted about it, just say it wasn't really you, but the sin that dwells in you, Right? That is not going to get anybody out of a speeding ticket. But again, he's making a very strong point that harkens back to our union with Christ. 
that when we were born again, born in the Spirit, that something radically new became true of us, that we were a new creation. Like, whether we believe that or not, the Bible is teaching this over and over and over. And when we read Scripture through the lens of the union of Christ that we have, the Bible is going to make way more sense. He's saying that there's something so new about him that it is no longer him that's doing it, but the indwelling sin that remains. I know that's kind of heady, right? This is like a pretty actually theological um, significant doctrine in the Bible called original sin. You guys ever heard of that? Original sin? Huge, huge uh, doctrine in the Bible. And we get that term indwelling sin from verse 20, where Paul says, it's no longer I who does it, but the sin that dwells in me. And so I don't want to get super crazy on you guys with doctrine, but this is one of those things that will help us understand who we are better. It's like a, a little bit of anthropology. It's like going to the doctor, getting the specific facts so that you can better navigate the solution, or at least, the very least, cope with your condition. And so the doctrine of original sin teaches that all areas of the human being has been affected by sin, that it actually penetrates us to the very core of who we are. And so earlier when, uh, when Paul was writing back in Romans chapter 5 and he was saying we're in Adam, he was making a very, very strong point that we have been born with Adam's DNA, so to speak, that we were born with a natural bend towards ourselves. And so our natural disposition when we're born is to disregard God and do things our own way as though he did not exist. Is that anyone's testimony? Like that was basically what he was doing before he came to Christ. A couple of scriptures to kind of illustrate this for you. Psalm 51.5, King David said this. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Like King David knew something was wrong with him from the get-go. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we all know this from experience, right? Like we, like we know like something is really wrong. Like just hang out with a three-year-old for a couple hours, right? Like no one taught that kid to be so selfish. Or just look at the landscape of human history. Overall, it is, it is not a pretty picture. Or I'm sure that we can all think of examples from our own adult life that we're now ashamed of. Like I know I have plenty of those. And so the other side of original sin, this is also important, Original sin does not mean is that we are bad or as sinful as we could be. It doesn't mean that we don't have a sense of morality. It doesn't mean that we can't do good things. It doesn't even mean that we cannot conform outwardly to the law of God. But it does mean that even our good actions are tainted with ulterior motives. Isaiah went so far to say that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And the filthy rags in the original language are really filthy. In other words, we are way, way more wretched than we really know because God's word is like a mirror that shows us what we're really like. Uh, growing up, my grandmother, my grandmother had this really weird mirror in her house. And I discovered this really weird mirror when I was about seven years old. And it was a mirror that you could actually plug into the wall. And it was a circular mirror. And the mirror had these really like ungodly bright fluorescent lights around it. And this mirror was a magnification mirror, right? Like one of those beauty mirrors, I guess you could call it. And I remember when my seven-year-old face saw itself in that mirror for the first time, I was absolutely horrified. Like I was so naive. I didn't realize that my face was covered in pores, like all these little holes in my face. And I had chicken box scars, and they looked like craters instead of little scars. 
And so I saw myself for the first time. I was like, wow, I'm really ugly. And that's just kind of what God's word does to us. It's like, man, you don't, you don't even understand the depth of how gnarly you are because we're so subtle. And so when I saw my face, I, I had to ask my mom if, you know, if, if that was a thing. Like, do I look like that? But it's only in the magnification mirror, right? And so, and so this is really the great predicament of the, uh, of the Christian, right? This is our great predicament, right? Like, this is theology, that, that we have still have this original sin nature and the new nature in Christ all under one roof, right? Like, we are a crazy bunch of people. And so Paul, being aware, aware of this reality, with all this inner turmoil, he just cries out, and he says, who's going to save me from this body of death? And the reality is that when you were born of the Spirit, you begin to understand the holiness of God in a whole new way, and your own wretchedness in this incredibly uncomfortable, bright, fluorescent light. And that light, brothers and sisters, only gets brighter and brighter as you progress through the Christian life. In fact, Paul had been a Christian for well over 20 years when this book was penned. And so, in closing, we're almost done already, guys. Is that exciting? Yeah, huh? Because I know you guys are ready. You're like, get this guy out of here. Um, but I'm staying for the, for the uh, closer here. But I want to give you guys just a, a, an illustration and an application. Illustration and application. And the illustration is going to come from this famous story. That, this story embodies us so good. Like, this guy was brilliant. People were way smarter back in the day. I'm sorry. And there's a story that this guy named Robert Stevenson Rowe in 1886 called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that was later turned into this really creepy movie in 1931. And I watched some YouTube clips of that, um, and it was really creepy. I feel uncomfortable about it still in my heart. Um, but really weird, and a lot of really weird renditions. But the book, the book is actually really good. And so what's interesting about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is that it actually is um, inspired by our text today. Like that story is actually inspired by Romans chapter 7 because he was a Christian raised in a home in Scotland. And so this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler alert, okay? But it came out in the 30s, all right? And the book came out in the 1800s. So I feel like we had our chance. Spoiler alert, okay? So this is your fault, right? You can't be mad about it. And so the story goes that Dr. Jekyll, he's this outstanding citizen doctor. And he creates this magic potion, which he refers to as metaphysical chemistry. I love stuff like that. Like, it is, it's such a good book. Metaphysical chemistry. But we'll call it a magic potion. And this potion enables the good and evil part of himself to split, right? To become two different people, completely free of each other, complete autonomy. And so the logic that Dr. Jekyll believes is that this is the problem with the human condition, is that either of those two selves, the good person or the bad person, the Dr. Jekyll or the Mr. Hyde, allows the other to fully enjoy life. You guys chewing on that yet? And so the big idea is if he can somehow separate the two, hence the magic potion, then they can finally be free of each other to enjoy life to the fullest, right? The evil person can live free without the problem of guilt. Like he can just live this whole life without the problem of guilt. And the good version can live a life without the problem of temptation. And so obviously the story is way more involved in this, but one of the most Roman 7 inspired moments from the story comes after he drinks the potion for the first time. This is so good. And after Dr. Jekyll drinks the potion for the first time, Stevenson writes this in his book. It should be on the screen. 
he drinks the potion, and he says this, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to my original evil. That is, when he was free from the fight of good and evil within himself, he understood for the first time how wretched he really was when he was free from this evil body that he was still connected to. You guys following? C.S. Lewis put it way better. He's so simple. He said this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Like if, you'll find that out as you progress into life, that, man, this, we're way more wretched than we like to understand. And so this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 7, that he, is, that he has these right and good desires, but yet he has this old nature that drags him down. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I can't help but resonate with Paul on so many levels, right? As he's going back and forth and he gets to a boiling point and he just yells out, who's going to save me from this body of death? Like this seems hopeless. And then he reminds himself of the gospel and he says, thank you, Jesus, right? He reminds himself of the gospel and he says, thank you, Jesus, that you will set me free from this body of death. But the difference between Paul and us is that our battle still ongoing, right? Like Paul already went to go home, right? And so until we take our last breath, we have to navigate this Jekyll and Hyde type war. And the stakes are really, really, really high in this war, right? Like we're not talking about pressing borders further, liberating oppression, fighting for freedom for nations that come and go. But we're talking about a war for souls, right? Because here's why Romans 7 really matters, because our success, each one of us, our success in this battle has a direct effect on those in our sphere of influence, right? If we allow the, the Jekyll to live out or the Hyde to live out, it has a direct effect on those who are in our sphere of influence. And in fact, Paul says that this battle matters so much so that he writes in another place that we, the Christian, is actually an ambassador for Christ, an ambassador for Christ, that we represent God in a foreign land. But here's what's crazy about us, is that we are ambassadors with a dual citizenship, right? Like one side of us wants to represent the foreign land that we used to live in, and the inner nature wants to represent the promised land where Christ lives. And so the, the implications for this inner struggle are massive, because we are the king's ambassador. And so Paul's going to dive really, really, really deep on the nitty-gritty on how to live out this battle in Romans chapter 8. But the very first verse in Romans chapter 8 is the foundation for everything else that he's going to say. And you guys probably know that verse, one of my favorite verses. He says, 8.1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That is to say that the battle that we have may rage day to day within our hearts, but we fight, Christian, from a place of victory because Christ has already won the war. And that's the foundation that we fight from. That's the foundation that Paul is going to unfold the battle plans in Romans chapter 8. Does that make sense at all? So in closing, here's the, here's the application. I want to read another passage over in Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul basically sums up this big, heady theological thing that he's going to go in Romans chapter 8 really concisely over in Galatians. And this is going to be our application. And he says in Galatians 5, verse 16 through 18, he says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Isn't that like the application for everything in here? Like this, let this, if you knuckleheads, let the Spirit guide your lives. And he goes on. 
And he says, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. You see what he's saying, right? He's saying, let the Spirit guide your lives, and your inner nature will prevail. And I'll just give you three quick things that the Holy Spirit will always guide us into, so we don't have to leave here with any ethereal thoughts. This Holy Spirit will always lead us into at least three things, right? The Holy Spirit will always lead us to exalt Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always lead us into mission, and the Holy Spirit will always lead us into greater degrees of holiness. And so as I said a couple weeks ago, that it's not about holy perfection, right? That was taken care of on the cross. But the Christian life is very much so about a holy direction, right? It's not about being perfect, like welcome to your body of flesh with two different natures. You're all crazy, right? Paul's saying it for us all. And so the guidance of the Holy Spirit and these three things will be the, the compass in our lives to see if we're on course. And so this week we can ask ourselves, this, if what I'm about to do, is it, does it exalt Christ? Does it lead me into mission, or does it lead me into greater holiness, right? That's what the Spirit always desires to do. And here's what's cool about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows our condition way better than we do, right? Like, He's God. Like, He understands our condition way more than He does. And Paul's basis for his argument is, man, just let the Spirit guide your lives. You don't understand your own nature. And so as we leave this place, my prayer for all of us, I'm at the end of my notes, so I'm just babbling right now. Um, my, my prayer for all of us is that we would just allow the Spirit to, lie, to, to guide our lives. Because we could maybe just ask the question, you know, like, who's winning in our lives? That, you know, if you were to say, like, Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde, like, who prevails, right? Because it really is about a direction of holiness. Because God is not going to allow us to make peace with sin, right? The Christian will always have this inner turmoil that says, no, like, that is not for me. That is not who I am. And so let's not make peace with sin, but continue in a direction of holiness. Amen? All right, Lord, we thank you that your word is true. It's living and active, and it's really a, the guide to our lives, Lord. And we ask that today you would teach us new things about your word as we go home, or even as we go into a time of worship, that the Spirit would really illuminate like our condition, and how wretched we really are, and how you take us through this life and show us that. But yeah, you came for us, God. You said that you love us and your, your love wasn't contingent on anything. You just, you came to save sinners, Lord. And we want to, we want to praise you for that. Like you're a good God. And so God, we ask that this week that you would just really teach us what it means to be guided by the Spirit. That it wouldn't be just words on a page, but it would be a living thing that we actually seek out to do. And so God, we need you to do that. Like we're way more sinful than we want to admit. I know that's true in my own life. And so God, we just thank you that you accept us anyway. Like you say, I love that person and I want him a part of my kingdom. And as long as he has faith in this truth and he's a part of it. And so God, we praise you that you're a good God. Um, I also just lift up the crew over in Israel. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use them radically, that when they come back, they would be, be uh, um, uh, just a new freshness about the whole church because of what they've experienced. Like we pray that you would really just pour into them that they could come back and say, wow, you know what, church? God is actually real, and he wants to direct our lives. 
And so we pray that you would do that, that you would anoint Trip and anoint all of their ears and eyes to receive everything the Spirit has for them to receive. We thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you. And I pray that you would reveal yourself further beyond my limitation of who you are through the week. It's the creation. As we go out there and look at the ocean and the mountains, like you are a good God. You're amazing. So God, we want to worship you for everything you're worth now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.